everybody. Welcome to the latest episode of the Origo Technically Speaking podcast. Today, we have Greg Orm. Greg is the author of the business book of the year in 2020, The Human Edge. How do humans maintain their advantage, fulfillment, and enthusiasm for life in the rise of technology and AI? Greg has a fantastic range of experience as a global coach, mentor, facilitator on strategy, leadership, and works with countries all over the world. He also spends a lot of his time at the London Business School as program director. So welcome, Greg. Uh, Well, Alex, thank you for that really kind introduction. I'm delighted to be here and on the podcast. Thanks. No worries. And uh, I've loved reading your book, so I'm super excited uh, about, about learning more about it. Obviously, at uh, Arigo, we spend a lot of time helping companies make more of technology. So talking about how we maintain human engagement and productivity uh, is, is, is fantastic. So just to bring everyone up to speed, could you give us a little overview of your background and, and what you do? Oh, sure thing. I mean, now I have a kind of bit of a strange existence. I have a portfolio of things to do. I'm a, a business author with this, my second book. Uh, I'm also a corporate facilitator and, and, and coach and trainer through the London Business School and also directly with clients, really with a specialism around how do you respond to a disrupted world with personal and team creativity and, and innovation. Uh, and I'm also a keynote speaker when, when, when we're allowed to travel, which we're not, not at the moment, but I do it online now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We've done it when we've been doing webinars lately uh, or on, 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 on sort of remote, remote Zoom and that sort of thing. So it's, uh, it's a strange world, but, but hopefully we'll, we're, we're working our way through it, aren't we? Yeah. Well, it brought us together. So uh, I'm, I'm excited about our conversation. So, so, Greg, let us know a bit about the premise for the book. What was it that made you think, this, this, is, this is what I need to write about? Sure. So it's kind of like a lot of these business books, it's in the subtitle. So the, the subtitle is How Curiosity and Creativity Are Your Superpowers in the Digital Economy. So it, like a lot of books, it came from a question that I couldn't answer, Alex. It was about four, five years ago. I was giving a keynote speech at London Business School for alumni and one, uh, a female CEO came up to me after the speech and said, you know, I really like the idea of how AI is changing and, and digital uh, t- uh, technology generally is changing the workplace. And I'm interested in that. But what about me? What do I need and what do my daughters need in the next 10, 20 years? And I stood there and I was thinking, I don't have a great answer to this question. So that set me off on a journey, um, trying to think about that question, looking at the available research, and it came up with the human edge. And the human edge is kind of my response, looking at why we as humans are powerful and can differentiate ourselves from machines. And uh, and as you say in your intro, uh, not just survive, but thrive. Because the the narrative that that sells papers and and gets clicks is that, we're going to be made redundant as humans. Uh, if you remember the movie Wall-E, where there's basically people hovering around on couches and everything's done for them. Uh, so what's your view on the role of AI in, in, in the future of, of the workplace? Well, as I said to you uh, before uh, we started, Alex, I'm no technologist. I am a, a specialist in leadership and organisational change who's fascinated by the impact of technology. But my understanding of the real brains out there in this field is I think that's a lot of froth from the media. 
Uh, we're really dealing with narrow AI. Uh, you know, I think I heard a quote once saying, this isn't the Terminator. This is a smart washing machine. Okay, so, yeah. so you can apply AI in a very narrow way, and it really will do a fantastic job assuming that you've applied it in that way. So really the question in my book, because I've written a book for maybe the next 10, 15 years, is not how do you survive with you know supercomputers and human level uh, intelligence from machines, because I think that's a long way off. It may not ever happen in our lifetimes. But where we are is I think some jobs will go, right? Okay, in the next five years, if you've got a job that's routine and repetitious and you can and you can re- uh, allow machine learning to look at all the keystrokes the way you do it and a million other people do it, well, that's going to be automated. But for the rest of us, for those of us in more complex, nuanced jobs, so-called knowledge workers, well, we're going to see the simple tasks cheese sliced away. And that's really interesting because that leaves a space for what, what's left for us as humans. Yeah. And what's the great paradox for me is that means, according to my argument, you need to be more human, not less in a world of machines. Yeah. And, and I know uh, I do a lot of, I spend a lot of time consulting and working in the, in the, the sales space. I know with Arigo, we, we work a lot with uh, companies going through AI. And, and you look at salespeople, they may only spend 20 to 30% of their time actually selling. Uh, the rest of the time is doing tasks that are relatively menial, repetitive, and and the things that a machine can do, programmed correctly, can actually bubble up the right information for a for a worker to make the right decisions at the right time. So uh, my view is always about how you uh, how it works in synergy together. You know, takes away the boring stuff and leaves the exciting things. Yeah, absolutely, and. Um, you know, I think the, the argument I make in the book is um, where this is going to be better and is already better in these routine and re- repetitious tasks. Don't compete. That That's a fool's errand. <laughs> you, you know, don't compete in a war you're bound to lose. Uh, really go to the parts that machine. Uh, uh, there's, a, there's a certain uh, mathematician who came up with a thing called Moravec's paradox. And the paradox is this where machines are good, we're poor. And where we're really good, machines are very bad. So, you know, we do, effectively, we do narrow machine, uh, sorry, we do broad, machines do narrow. So we do things like empathy and creativity and passion and thinking of the next question, whereas AI can think and analyze the last question and does that really, really well. Uh, I mean, just look at uh, where AI is strong, even in really, really complex tasks, such as the diagnosis of disease. It's uh, for, for some time, my understanding is AI has been the best cancer diagnostician on the planet. So I know if someone asked me, you know, uh, in, the, in the sad circumstances of me getting ill, I would want an AI to diagnose my cancer. Yeah. But I'd want to be cared for and I'd want the options for my treatment to be delivered by a human being. And you, and you look at also how that then can democratise healthcare across the world. It's not about having a smart radiologist in a London hospital, suddenly you've got people in Africa that can get access to at least a diagnosis uh, in that as well. So, but, but the premise of the book is about curiosity, creativity of human beings, and you uh, distill it down to the four C's. Uh, so talk us through the four C's and then we can go through each one in, in, in turn. 
Sure. So, so these are these, these so-called superpowers that I they talk about, and they are at a high level. So, hopefully, quite memorable for people. And I've got uh, the four are consciousness, curiosity, creativity, and collaboration. And Alex, if you like, I can just give you uh, one level down of information, if you like, yeah, and then we can dig into each one of them individually. So consciousness, uh, each of them, by the way, falls out into two what I call dance steps. So there's eight units of interest, if you like. And yeah. the reason I call them dance steps is because you can link them together in any order. This isn't particularly, doesn't have to be in one order. I, of course, I had to write it in one order and I'll give yeah. you it in that order. But so in the book, the dance steps for consciousness are meaning. How do you articulate and find meaning in the work you do? Um, the second one is how do you find focus in a digitally distracted world? Under curiosity, we have how do you question the world? How do you ask great questions? And how do you learn every day? And uh, creativity, I cover all the things that help you have ideas and then, uh, and then use those first ideas to have even more. So to kind of ideate. Uh, to use a terrible word, which I wish I hadn't used. And then the fourth one is uh, collaboration. And I take a slice through human collaboration and look at forming human networks to help you validate your ideas and, and also the concept of individual and business experimentation, which I think is really useful, by the way, in COVID times, because yeah. experimentation is the answer to what do you do when you don't know what to do? Because well, we've sort of been living through this if you think about it the fact that i think covid has and lockdowns have caused people to sort of question their meaning their purpose and and, and what they're really doing uh some people have been curious about how they actually make it work uh, and and have to, many have had to be creative in that so uh so first and foremost could we just focus on meaning so what role does does meaning play in our in maintaining our human edge uh in today's world uh, absolutely. Uh, you know, I, with the book, I, I actually set out not to write an organization book or a leadership book. This is actually for everyone. However, if those people listening to the podcast are managing leaders in your hands, because you've got the power in the organization, this is even more powerful. But meaning has been written about and talked about, I see probably from the late 90s, from a business perspective. And I, what I'm excited about is we've long known the psychology. If you can have meaning in your life, it it catalyzes you, it motivates you, it makes you go the extra mile. But what's really interesting to me is we're now seeing through um, fMRI scanners and uh, more technology, we can actually see what happens to the brain. And what happens to the brain when you are living a meaningful life or having meaning every day is it releases dopamine, the so-called motivational molecule, the sort of yep. legal cousin to cocaine. And that allows you to really want to take a risk to get involved. And let's face it, if you look at all the engagement scores across the world in some of the businesses that, that our listeners will be running, they're very low. And meaning is a way to get engagement up and, and encourage people to take a risk and want to be creative in the first place. So and I guess there's different types of meaning. You've got meaning in the work that people do. So in the book, you talk about how uh, is it a Scandinavian bank and they engage their is it Finnish bank and they engage they take the leaders to meet the farmers that's that right that yeah. buy their financial service products yeah 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 uh, and really I mean obviously meaning is a life wide concept you know we want meaning in our whole life because this is a business book I'm looking at meaning and relationship to 
to your work, you know, mm-hmm. not just what you do or how you do it, but why you do it. And um, I, I actually think meaning you need to get practical really quickly because it can be a bit sort of hippie and tree huggy otherwise <laughs> to, to use yeah. some phrases. And so that, that advice that you gave there is actually there's great science to show one of the best ways to encourage dopamine, this legal drug in people's brains, is not to give them rousing speeches, but to actually introduce them to the people that their, their goods and services benefit. That has huge implications for how people see and frame what they do. Yeah. And another part of meaning is, and I work with a lot of leaders as well, is, is leaders spending time finding out what the meaning is or the goal or the purposes of each person that works in their team. Uh, in, in my own book, I talk about the, like, do you know what they want to get from the money, what they want to spend the money that they earn on? What, how do yeah. they want that to impact their life? Because it's about how you harness all those different aspects, personal, professional meaning to, to get that person to be motivated. Yeah. And I think that's a great point, Alex. And, and, and I think there's two, there's two elements in it. One meaning can be a North star for, for a team to, to try to make decisions in a complicated world. And the second one is really how do you get meaning into the conversation as a leader? And I think the easiest way is to literally, under the right circumstances, ask people, why do you work here? Or a slightly different question, why did you come to work here? Because actually that promise may not have been delivered. Yeah, <laughs> so it's, a, it's a very interesting question. And that is the, uh, the heart of a new field of psychology called positive psychology, which I explore a little bit in the book. Fantastic. So just touching briefly, you talk about focus and I'm not sure if you've seen the movie Up where you've got the dog and he goes, hi, my name's Brian Squirrel. Uh, <laughs> yeah, like, I love uh, that. Focus is a, is a real challenge for me. So talk me through what you found around focus and how that's a, of benefit to making people feel more content in what they do. Yeah. You know, when you write a book, you don't always know what's going to go in it. And if you told me before I wrote the book that I'd be writing about focus, effectively time management, I would have said, well, no, this is a much more elevated book than that. But actually, we're living in a world where time management, the ability to direct your intention to certain things when you want to, is getting rarer. And as a result, anything we know, the economics, anything that gets rarer is more valuable. And the reason uh, I'm sure your listeners being technologists will know this, we're living in a world with the greatest attention hijack in human history, thanks to our smartphones and the AI-enabled apps that sit on there. So this is the paradox in the book. To be more human, sometimes you have to unhook uh, intentionally from technology. So in that chapter, I talk a little bit about why this is important why uh, social media is, is addictive. It was, it was designed to be addictive and why we need to control that as well as always on work emails in order to, to be more like cognitive athletes. Yeah. You know, we, we need to train and behave more like sports athletes do to the way we think because that's the value we're adding. And, and, and we, we work with lots of companies about how they drive efficiency and effectiveness by making the most of the technology that, that's available. And sometimes those projects involve how do you help tasks be done behind the scenes to remove the, the human carrying the bucket, as it were, that, so that so the individual doesn't get distracted and actually things can take place behind the scenes where they get a bit more capacity to focus on the high value activities. 
Yes, and just to be clear, and I shouldn't be uh, uh, anti-tech on this podcast, I am not an anti-technologist. I'm not some doom monger. These smartphones are clearly the, the greatest tool for human productivity we've ever invented. But like any great power, I think it was Sophocles who said, any great power that comes into the realm of mortals has a light and a dark side. It's got both. So it's about using these productivity and communication tools for the right thing and getting rid of the distractions. And I think when we look back on this era, we will be like, uh, uh, you, you were referencing a, t a film earlier, like in Mad Men, the advertising company guys, they're always smoking in the 1960s. I think we'll see our relationship with smartphones like those people back then. They didn't realize smoking was bad for them. Yes. Distraction is very bad for you. Uh, and I often think of uh, Albert Einstein, who famously did his best work when he turned away from being a patent clerk to the theory of relativity. If he'd had an Instagram account and 400 emails from his boss and his colleagues, would we have got that? <laughs> I doubt it, right? So yeah. we have to protect our own creativity. And so how do you, in your own so if, I, if I ask you to put your business school hat on and your consulting hat on, how do leaders reduce the distraction for their for their teams because there is this whirlwind of of just noise in our lives at work so what what are the things that they can do it's a, it's a great question and and really it's uh, it, this is throughout the book what i say to leaders if you're a leader reading this book you uh, have to walk the talk to use the cliche you have to show the behaviors before other people will do it and so, you know, don't send an email at, uh, at 12 o'clock and expect a response and at Formula One response times unless it's really important. Offer your people some freedom on how they design their day. There's a lot of research to show that we have moments during our day where we're much more likely to get into a state of flow, as psychologists call. We can be five times more productive. So don't in interrupt them when they're doing that. Encourage yeah. them to turn off their email platform for periods of the day. Encourage them not to take this, and I'm holding up, by the way, because it's a podcast, my, my, uh, my smartphone, uh, into their dining rooms and their bedrooms at night because yeah. you will wreck their sleep. So allow people to balance their lives with the technology and use it rather than having it kind of like interrupt yeah. them all. And probably my, my favorite quote from the book is that we all have smartphones, but for some people it makes them dumber and for some people it makes them smarter. So the tool itself is not good or bad. It's how you use that tool, like many things in life. And as a result of that, with all these things, you read something, you think, that's right. And then I basically deleted Instagram. I moved YouTube, which is my is like my time sink, uh, into a different folder that's a couple of swipes away. Because like that stuff, you deep down know it's not making you any smarter. It's not helping you feel good. Uh, so I just want to say thank you for, for, for that, because I think one of the things I took from the book is at the end of every section, there's little exercises that you could do. Uh, and I've, I've loved going through those uh, because you sort of think, oh, that's a really good, uh, really good exercise. What, why did you do? Why did you put those exercises into the book? Well, first, Alex, thanks for making my day. It's really wonderful to hear when 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 somebody's changed something in their life, just a little something maybe because of what they read in the book. You know, I, I just believe, um, I write for people who've got, you know, we, we were just talking about everybody who reads my book, if they're ex certainly an executive and a manager, are time poor. So I try and make it straightforward for them. So I try and offer them the why, 
I offer some evidence of why I think these things are important. And then I offer them behaviors that they can experiment with. And so, so they don't have to work too hard. I kind of like just summarize it at the end to give them to things that they can go and do in their lives. So, you know, I think that's, it's just a service I try and do for the reader. That's all. Well, I mean, my, I, I, I mean, when I wrote my book, it was the same. You just want to, all you want someone to do is do something differently. And, and I'm a, my background is in training and performance improvement. And so you can read all you want, but really it's about the action you inspire and just, just trying to be that catalyst is really important. Uh, let's move on to curiosity uh, and the wonderful world of why. Yes. Well, uh, again, curiosity became, I didn't think it would be a whole C when I first started looking at this, but then I realized if motivation gives you the courage to step forward, you know, that's the meaning. And then the focus gives you the time. The next step that the sort of gateway to creativity, which is the first amongst equals, if you like, amongst the C's is this idea of asking why, um, and one of the really inspiring things that I found about curiosity is unlike your intelligence, which is kind of, you know, fairly static in your life, you can actually raise your IQ through various means and then your ability to work hard. These are the levers you can pull to get successful. The third one that's not often talked about is your need for cognition, as psychologists call it, but which is actually, you know, the rest of us call it curiosity. And they call it a cognitive muscle. So uh, if you've been in performance training, you know people who do exercise. If you do a little bit every day, your muscles get stronger and harder. It's the same with curiosity. If you exercise it every day, it gets bigger. It's not a fixed trait like eye color. You can be more curious based on a few things that you can do. Which and I, I think, I think the culture of an organization will sometimes encourage or, or discourage curiosity. Uh, I know I've, I've spent a lot of time working in an organization that was very like you have to know there was a fear of not knowing but and and the 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 certainty around the way and i'm sure you've worked with businesses that have their way their model uh it sort of kills curiosity because what a lot of big businesses want is people just to follow the process that someone else has defined as opposed to challenge and stretch and flex what what the norm might be considered yeah, and how out of fa- how, how ridiculous that sounds in COVID nineteen times or in times of disruption. That oh, I know all the answers. I know how things are going to turn out. I mean, it was never the case. And I think this fake certainty that we seem to breed in our middle management and our senior leaders is just uh, toxic. And if you look at enlightened organisations, organisations that have the ability to 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 flex and flow with what's going on, they encourage questions to bubble up. So I spend quite a lot of time on. How as a leader and how as a person can you encourage yourself to ask more questions, good good types of questions, and also encourage that in the people around you? Yeah. And I know, I remember sometimes, you know, sometimes when you're a leader, you get a kick, don't you, from something one of your teams say. And they, someone asked me a question once and I went, I genuinely don't know. And they were like, that's the first time you've never known. And I'm like, that's just not good. That's, that's like what, that, like, that, that's, you sort of, it's easy to become what you uh what you what you don't want to what you don't want to be so what are your what are your tips to a become more curious in yourself and b encourage more curiosity from your team okay so, so i break those down into sort of learning and questioning which are the two dance steps if you if you remember the first one on learning i you know i think it's really beholden on anybody who wants to get on in modern organizations to take their own learning and development into their own hands 
uh, of course, you hope that your your organization is supporting you in that. And I think of a thing called the five hour rule that I talk about in the book. Uh, it comes from the Bill Gates story, if you remember, because he's a bit of an icon of executive learning. And he used to take himself off twice a year, for these think weeks where he would just read. Yeah. And so the point I make in the book is we're not all the chairman of the board, so we can't afford to take a week off just to read. But you can find five hours maybe in a working week or a seven day week. And if you that that really builds up. So what are you reading? What podcasts are you uh, subscribing to? You know, what YouTube channels, what magazines, what conferences? It's up to you to try and maybe put five hours aside that builds up over the year. And that actually is the cognitive fuel that you're right. gathering, hopefully in different domains for creativity later on. So yeah. I talk a lot about learning and how you can do more of it and how you can do it more rapidly. Um, sorry, I'm aware I'm going on here, but no, I want no, to just no, talk no, about no, questions no, as well. Good. I mean, you mentioned the word learning there, and I think it's an important distinction between training and learning, because actually a lot of people abdicate responsibility for their own personal development to the employer, uh, where actually learning is your responsibility as an individual, and the, a leader has a role of responsibility to support that. But ultimately, if you're bored in your job because you're not learning, yeah, that's that, that's partly your fault. Uh, and and you know, this is what psychologists call intrinsic motivation. You know, what you need your people to be. And this is where curiosity comes in. There's lots of uh, neuroscience now even to show that. If you're curious about a subject or you can generate curiosity, as I say, it's not a fixed uh, trait or capability, you can learn faster. You can learn with more attention and more depth. So that's really interesting, isn't it? Because in the world that we face, Alex, the ability to unlearn what you know and then learn something new in these very long careers that we're having now is that our lives get longer. is going to be the key, I think, to the 21st century. Yeah, so I really important. A competency I saw in a framework reach a bit re- recently that was was two two different ones from different companies. One was teachability, like how good are you at being taught and being coached, and the other one was learnability. So how what what's your learn what's your ability to learn like? Yeah. Uh, well, I'm hating both of those words, but uh, I, I actually I really <laughs> like the concept because. You know, I think you're a bit, you know, I think it stems from this ability to find the world interesting. Uh, and uh, what's interesting, if you look at the science behind curiosity, it, it's in a U-shaped curve. So you, if you get a little, if you find out a little bit about a subject area, you're, it starts dragging you up this curve. You're more interested, you know, whatever it may be, ballet or Polish wine or, you know, some random subject. And the more you can learn across domains, that really sh- that really primes your creative brain because ideas happen when one idea jumps the fence from one domain into another. That's pretty much all innovation or and all creativity. So- and often, different industries are more progressive in different areas. So, and so by reading outside of your industry, you find might find an idea where another industry is more progressive, and you think, well, if they've done that, how could we apply that to what we do? And, and suddenly. Your, your, and, that, and that's where when companies only hire people that have worked from competitors, sure, you get some cross-fertilization, but you don't get the big leap. Yeah. And you want to avoid that group thing. And, and you asked me what my piece of I've often asked that piece of advice because I've worked with you know, literally thousands of 
executives at London Business School, you know, what's the one piece of advice of all the courses, you know, if you just boiled it down to one thing. And I suspect it would be, certainly for leaders, is stop providing all the answers, picking up on what you were saying earlier, Alex, about your bit of a kind of like, oh my God, I've been providing all the answers and start asking great questions. And what I mean by great questions is not closed questions. That's what prosecution lawyers do to, you know, establish the facts. I mean, open questions like, what if? What if we do it this way? Why don't we try another way? Have you seen what our clients are doing these days or our customers are doing? Those, those encourage divergent thinking and that's, that creates an atmosphere around you as a leader. Yeah, a, t- a technique I often taught, I teach leaders is a, a questioning technique that you learn if you become a police officer uh, to interrogate and it's called Little Ted. And I, I found this out from a lady that I was sitting next to on a train. And I, I'm really bored on trains, so I talk to everyone. I found, <laughs> I've learned amazing things on trains. And this lady was uh, chief superintendent of the serious crime squad, so she deals with proper gangsters. Uh, and I was like, oh, I'm doing a course on questioning today. Uh, what would you, any advice? And she went, oh, have you heard of Little Ted? Uh, and I went, no, tell me. So basically, it's the three questions that the police always ask. Tell me, explain to me, describe to me. And they're all open questions that, yes. that seek that seek context, not uh, not not sort of just answers. It's about explanation, not confirmation. Uh, and to end the story, I ran home telling my wife this amazing technique, and she was a teacher, and she's like, "Oh, that's what we're taught in safeguarding. I've known that for years." And I'm like, "How can you hide the genius?" <laughs> and that's great, isn't it? I've, n- I've never heard of that. And if you think about it, police officers—they're in the um, business of gathering the information which the prosecutors then use. So it makes sense that they're trying to cover the ground as much as possible. So yeah, you can learn from lots of different. Uh, walks of life, can't you? In, in coaching, I've done a little bit of executive coaching over the years. And coaching, you know, which I think all leaders should be good coaches now, coaching is all about asking questions that get the person to describe the solution. So that's what we're talking about. Yeah, no, fan- fantastic. So uh, creativity. Now, I, I would, I, I spend a lot, I, I think the perception is often creativity is, am I really good at drawing? Uh, help, help, help me redefine whether, whether what creativity is. Yeah, and that, and that is often, I mean, I talk in the book, you'll remember about the myths that surround creativity. And one of them is that it's about geniuses or people who are good at art. Uh, and so being good at drawing is a craft. It's not a creative act. You know, if I'm good at drawing, I can make draw. There's a sort of just a craft uh, attribute to that creativity is a way of seeing the world. It's an attitude that you can layer onto crafts. That's why you get deeply creative painters or, or musicians. They are, someone can be brilliant at the electric guitar. That is a craft to then break the rules like Jimi Hendrix did. Uh, God, I'm showing my age now, aren't I? You know, or, or someone else uh, a bit more modern. You know, that is creativity. That's a way of seeing the world. Yeah. And just for the listeners is that obviously you don't don't get to see Greg, but he is Peter Pan. Like he said, oh, my daughter's at university. And I'm like, there's no way (laughs) he he has had the easiest paper round in the whole world. Uh, So uh, which is which 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 is good. Maybe that's the key to create creativity. Uh, It keeps me young, I guess. (laughs) Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm I guess always conscious of time on the podcast. We try and keep it to 30 odd minutes. Could you share a couple of the exercises that you would encourage leaders to either do with themselves or their teams to start stimulating some of that creativity? Sure. So, you know, there there are lots of things, you know, um, 
just the general principle is creativity is quite inaccessible. So just trying to get to the sub skills that make it up because people say, I often ask people, are you creative? And like two thirds of them always say no, right? In every business I go to. And my job is to persuade those people to reconnect with creativity because everybody's creative. Uh, and so it's really about the questioning skills, the curiosity we've already talked about. That is the gateway to it. Yeah. Uh, if you are curious, you will become creative. You are hardwired to do that. And then really it's about observation, observing the world around you, feeling its passion. It's actually understanding the pain that your customers are going through. And really wanting to walk that journey with them, that will start suggesting things to you. Um, the learning helps. Of course, you can connect things from different domains. Um, the, the, one of the big ideas I talk about is having fun at work, which is often, you know, discounted. No, uh, we really don't do serious. fun. There's, there's work and then there are places that you smile, right? So <laughs> uh, I encourage people to bring that in because, and not just because I'm sort of a happy-go-lucky guy, the science supports it. Um, people are, have more divergent thinking, as I was saying, have more what's called perceptual flexibility when they're in a lighter mood. So if you can organize, um, if you're a leader, if you can combine these things, organize a session with, which you're asking people about the meaning of their work, that's going to get them into an open mood. Use open coaching type questions. Maybe you've got a big problem in the middle because all the entrepreneurs I know, they find great problems to solve. It starts with a problem. And if you can combine these elements in a meeting and maybe even, maybe just maybe, bring a little bit of fun and humor into that room, that will create an, what I call a microclimate in that particular, even if the rest of your business is totally uncreative, you have the power to create a microclimate by just doing these, I mean, they're simple things. This is not brain surgery. It's just stuff that is often left at the door, uh, left to the weekend. You can bring that humanity into your business and it pays to do so because all creativity is the first step towards innovation, which is next year's revenue. I, I get creativity. I mean, I, I, so I was listening to a podcast the other day and it said, I can't remember who said it, but when they want to be creative, and they've got a problem, the first thing they do is write down all the things that they know won't work. Uh, yeah. So rather than saying, what could we do? And, and, and then that's their starting point to sort of find the gem in the things that they've dismissed, because those are often things that they've tried and have failed, but maybe they can rethink it. So uh, that, 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 that was my latest tip in, in, in creating. Yeah, and it reminds me of a thing I discovered. There's a global design agency called Ideo. Uh, very famous. Uh, uh, and they have a bad ideas brainstorm before the good ideas brainstorm. And yeah. the point they're making is it makes them laugh because they come up with all sorts of stuff that's completely <laughs> not workable. And there's doing two things at once. It's doing what you're suggesting, but also getting them in a good mood because people in a good mood who are smiling are more, more creative. Yeah. And I guess it's leaders have got to give people that space, haven't they? And, and when 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 jobs people are running at hundreds of miles an hour it's very difficult to make that time and i guess you talk about your dance steps that you can use them in any order uh when we talk when i talk about creativity and i'm i'm sort of forcing myself to go through a creative phase at the moment it's about removing distractions you know and that that goes back to your first c which is yeah. around consciousness and the and the focus yeah, absolutely. You've got, I mean, personally, you've got to find the time and the space. You've got to take it seriously. And if you're a leader, uh, I realize most of the people I deal with are time pressured. 
they've got to deliver. But it's uh, for leadership, it's about understanding the, the, the yin and yang of this, the balance of it, knowing they've got to deliver, but also and then just, just give the, the space, create the space. It's your job to facilitate those moments where people can come forward and, and offer you solutions. Great. And, and so last but not least, we've got collaboration. And uh, I'm going to sort of try and bring it back to technology, which is obviously what we do at, at Ego. What role does technology play in encouraging collaboration and, and uh, motivation within teams? Well, it's a, you've, you've finished there on a massive question. We could have another three four <laughs> podcast off that. So thanks, Alex. Uh, but, uh, you know, I just say where we are now, we're clearly going to, I mean, I think a couple of things uh, I'm confident even as a non-technologist to say the, you know, we, we all know that technology innovation gets accelerated by downturns. It also gets accelerated by shocks like this. And we've seen AI automation that I think that's going to be fast uh, in the next couple of years. And of course, remote working. And, and I'm often asked now, you know, can you be collaborative and creative remotely, virtually? And of course you can, because actually, as we've said before, this is a cultural and an environmental issue. And you can create an environment on Zoom as we're using now, just as you can do in a room. There are more challenges to it. But I see a future in which organizations and leaders blend this a lot more. So I don't, I certainly in the UK, I know it's slightly different in Europe, but uh, people aren't keen to go back to work as they did before. They want some of their week getting the benefits of home working and some in the office. And that, as far as I can see from the research, is supported by creativity and collaboration research. You can do it. It is different. And of course, just as a side, by the way, the open plan office, which was planned as some big collaborative tool, was a disaster for human cooperation because why? It was totally distracting. So actually, that is wrong too. We need, we always need the ability to be on our own and the ability to be together. And we need the choice between the two. Yeah. And, and I think the, yeah, I, there's loads of things that come from that. We could have done a whole podcast on, <laughs> on, on that. So, uh, Greg, well, just to remind everybody, your book is The Human Edge, and it was Business Book of the Year. Uh, Greg, you've been a fantastic host, and I know on behalf of Origo, we really appreciate uh, you investing the time. Uh, hopefully, you'll make it to Iceland at, at some point. Uh, Love to. <laughs> and uh, Although you live in just outside Stratford-upon-Avon, which is an absolutely beautiful part of uh, the United Kingdom, so uh, which, is, which is great. So, Thank you very much uh, for your time. And uh, before I go, just let everyone know where they, where they can find you. Oh, if they go to gregorm.org, that's my website. I'm also really active on LinkedIn. So you can find me on LinkedIn, uh, you know, at Greg Orm. I post all my stuff there. So do feel free to connect to me. And I love to interact with people like that. And uh, Alex, it's just been a real pleasure. Uh, what a lovely conversation we've had. Thank you for making it. Thank you for the great questions. Uh, I've really enjoyed it. It's been, uh, it's been fantastic. And uh, yeah, thank you very much. Yeah.